I would invite you to open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we'll be looking at, I'll be reading verses 1 through 16 this morning. We will not be covering the, all of those. I, I decided to break it up. I wasn't sure how the conversation would go this morning and, and that type of thing. So, so nonetheless, I will be breaking this up into two parts. We'll be covering part today and then uh, the second half next, next Sunday. Uh, but nonetheless, I want to read it all so it's before you and you have the whole context with you. So John chapter 19 Verses 1 through 16. And God's inerrant inspired word reads, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. And Pilate came out and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered and said, We have a law, and that by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium and again said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made every effort, or made efforts, excuse me, made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. And therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew it is called Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so then they handed him over to them to be crucified. Father, we would ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And now, Lord, as we look at an event that we cannot fathom, that we cannot see ourselves in the place of these religious people who turned you over to be crucified. And yet, Father, by we are all guilty by association. And yet, Father, in a time that uh, is so dark, is so heavy, is so despicable, yet it is in with this moment that we have salvation offered to us. And so, Father, I pray that as we... Uh, Look at this text this morning. 
that your spirit would illuminate this text, that it would open our hearts and our minds to help us to understand it and also to help us to apply it to our everyday life. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have titled this sermon here this morning, Actions Have Consequences. In an exchange between uh, Sigmund Freud and Albert Einstein, Einstein asked the question, is it possible to control a man's mental evolution so as to make him proof against the psychosis of hate and destructiveness? And Freud replied that there is no likelihood of our being able to suppress humanity's aggressive tendencies. Newton's third law of motion states that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. These two ideas come together in this 19th chapter of John. Two power players sparring with one another, jockeying for position of authority. Now, this is the third party. There is a third party, the object of this tension culminating this Passover week, Jesus, Jesus. The Jewish leaders, they are feeling threatened by Jesus' claim of deity. Pilate is threatened by the power moves of these religious leaders. The consequence of these actions is deadly. In our text John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16, we will see two deadly consequences. First, the deadly consequence of compromise. Second, the deadly consequence of corruption. And so as I already mentioned, I will only cover the first today and the second next Sunday. But under today's heading, the deadly uh, uh, consequence of corruption, I'll have three sub-points And for those of you who like to write things down and want to see where we're going this morning, in verses 1 to 3, we will see, uh, we will see the abuse. In verses 4 to 5, we will see the presentation. And then verses 6 to 7, the rejection. The abuse, the presentation, the rejection. The overall heading I have for this section this morning, the deadly uh, consequence of, of corruption verses 1 through 7, we'll start with the abuse. In verses 1, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Now, we shouldn't understand or shouldn't see this as Pilate himself taking Jesus and scourging him. Rather, having him scourged, turning him over to those who do this type of punishment. So we see here in the next verse that the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. And they put a purple robe signifying uh, kingship, signifying a royalty, and placed it on making a mockery of Jesus. And they began to say to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they walking up to him and slapping him on the face. Some of the other gospel writers record for us that they said, guess who slapped you, Jesus? And in that way, mocking him. This is all part of the abuse that we see in these first three verses here this morning. But the focus on the passion of Christ is often limited to this final week of the life of Jesus. And when we view the humiliation of Jesus limited only to this final week, the abuse and the crucifixion, we fail to understand who Jesus is. You see, at the uh, 
conception of Jesus, Joseph, the husband of Mary, was told that the baby conceived in her, in your wife-to-be's womb, is conceived of the Holy Spirit. And you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. At the birth of Jesus, wise men of the east arrived in Jerusalem and were saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. At the birth of Jesus, we are told of the angels of the Lord appearing before the shepherds who were keeping watch over the flocks by night. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Today in the city of David has been born unto you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. We're also told that before these very shepherds, there suddenly appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men in which whom he is pleased. At the baptism of Jesus, Matthew tells us that the voice of the Father in heaven was heard saying to Jesus, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. This is the reception Jesus received at his coming to earth. Today, we will begin to see his rejection as he exits this earth. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 to 8, it tells us that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point, even death on a cross. When we limit our focus on the work of Jesus to this final week, the passion of Christ, we fail to understand who Jesus is. As the writer, we believe Paul, as he wrote Philippians, tells us that Jesus emptied himself. It's to, to lay aside his privileges. One Greek lexicon defined it simply as to divest oneself of position. Merriam-Webster Collegiate Dictionary defines divest as to deprive or disposes especially of property, of authority, of life. Totally emptying himself of who he was, who Jesus is. 33 years before Jesus even made it to the cross, he totally emptied himself of all privileges and status and in complete humiliation laid aside his position as the Son of God on behalf of you and I, on behalf of sinful men and women. This is the context in which we must understand the topic of the abuse of Jesus. The scourging, the mocking, the crowns of thorns, the slaps to the face, the crucifixion. These are just the period placed at the end of a life lived in total humiliation and surrender to God the Father. In fact, the abuse of Jesus was so intense that another gospel writer records for us that they had to get Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross on behalf of Jesus because he was so weak, so abused, he could not even carry his own cross. And this is what we were told by Isaiah the prophet as he prophesied the coming of the Messiah. 
In Isaiah 53, 5, he has said that he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. The abuse of Jesus was not compromised. The abuse of Jesus was vicarious, meaning literally in place of. As we think about what Jesus went under, could somebody such as that, fully man, fully God, could he carry on? And as we see Simon having to help him out, could the work of the atonement, was it really vicarious, meaning in place of, fully in place of us, and that there's nothing we need to add to the work of the cross, the work of this final week in the total 33 years of Jesus' life? And Jesus took on for himself the consequences of human sin. Theologians, they call this sacrificial substitutionary death as a vicarious atonement. Again, in place of. The atonement of Jesus was in place of those who he has come to save. And just in passing, I want to give three bullet points here regarding the perfect substitutionary atonement that we see in Jesus. First, it is an objective atonement, meaning that we add nothing to it. There's nothing that we can add to this work that Jesus has done. He has done absolutely everything that needs to be done so that you and I can be reconciled to the holy God the Father. It is a final, finished, unrepeatable work. We come to the Lord's table not as a way of recognizing once again the literal blood and the literal body of Jesus, but no, we come to the Lord's table recognizing the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. It's not crucifying the Lord over and over and over again, but it's remembering what he has done on our behalf. This work was a single event, not needed to be repeated again. It is efficacious atonement, meaning that Jesus did not come. And we need to hear this, that Jesus did not come to make salvation hypothetical. Jesus did not come to make salvation possible. Jesus did not come merely to make salvation available. Jesus came to save those, to save us, to save his people from their sins. Jesus' atonement was effective and it was sufficient. Actions have consequences and the actions of Jesus were and are and continue to be effective and sufficient for those who name him as Lord. That's the abuse that we see here. That's the abuse of Jesus in these first three verses. And now let's move on to verses three, or I'm sorry, four and five. In verses four and five, we'll see the presentation. And by presentation, I obviously mean the presentation of Jesus as Pilate now presents Jesus to those who brought Jesus before him to begin with. In verse four, Pilate came out and again said to them, behold, I am bringing him, Jesus, out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. That I find no guilt in him. And I want to just stop for just a moment here and think about this. Pilate came out again. So, So as the Jewish people, as these religious leaders, as these religious people were outside uh, 
outside the palace, outside the governing hall, if you will. Pilate was inside questioning Jesus. And so now, now Pilate comes out and says, I have questioned him. I have had him scourged. He has been abused. He has been disciplined. And now I bring him out to you so that you may know. I have put him through the tortures. I have put him through the events that we as the Romans do. And I find absolutely no guilt in him. This was a spectacle. This was exactly the, the, the effect that Pilate was hoping for, was that by the visible effects of the abuse on Jesus, that they would acknowledge and that they would realize that, that maybe we're wrong about this guy. Maybe we are incorrect on who we are thinking Jesus is. And Jesus had passed the examination by Pilate. A very insecure and authoritative dictator. I'm sure Pilate had Jesus questioned thoroughly, thoroughly. We must understand that because now Pilate is saying, I find no guilt in him. <laughs> there, there's, uh, listen, I'm the man. <laughs> I'm in charge. If my kingdom, if my empire is threatened, I'm going to find out about it. I'm sure this is not the first person that has come before Pilate being told or, or purposefully threatening his position. And yet Pilate comes out and says, I find no guilt. I find no guilt in this man. And 1 Peter 1 verse 19 says that you were not redeemed, speaking to those who are indeed the Lord's. You, you were not indeed with perishable things, or redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of of Christ. Jesus is the guiltless, spotless Lamb of God. Even Pilate, the unbeliever, recognized that at least Jesus was guiltless in what he was being accused, accused of. Verse 5. Verse 5, after Pilate came out and made his grand announcement, as I'm sure he did, then he had summons Jesus to come on out. This is a spectacle. This is a show that Pilate's putting on. As I said, consequences, the consequences, deadly consequence this morning here is all about compromise. And that's exactly what Pilate is trying to do. Pilate wants to compromise between the Roman people, keeping the peace of the week, and also these particular religious leaders. And so this was all purposefully orchestrated to convince these leaders and so that they can come together for some type of compromise. And so now Pilate has Jesus ushered out. And as he comes out, verse 5 tells us that Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Have you been to a play? Have you been to a musical? Have you been to any of these types of things? I'm not that fond of those things, but I've heard about them. As people come out onto the stage, maybe they're introduced in a special way. That the, that the audience has their attention drawn to that person or that part that that person is playing. That's what I envision that this would have been like here on this particular uh, day for Jesus. And so he presents Jesus wearing the crown of thorns. 
The mockery of, of the kingship. And possibly some commentators would like to say that, that even the, the thorn or even the, the, the crown or even that uh, uh, the, the, the type of uh, foliage that's used to make a type of crown that they would have used or a type of, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? The thing that they wear on their head, right? That we see in the Olympic Games. <laughs> uh, that, that, that this crown was something very similar except this particular bush, this particular vine had these thorns in it. And I don't know, maybe... But I do find it very interesting that we think about the crown of thorns. It is like, like the unveiling of a statue as, as Jesus comes out. And, and there he is wearing this crown of thorns, wearing this purple. And I was reminded that the very crown Jesus wore on his head with those thorns, was those thorns. It reminded me of Genesis chapter 3. It reminded me of the very purpose as to why Jesus had to come on our behalf. Genesis chapter 3, it tells us that because of our fall, because of our first father, Adam and Eve, and, 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 and directly then by us, that we have too fallen as they have. And here the ground was cursed, and thorns and thistles grew. These are the thorns. This is the curse that Jesus is now wearing upon his, his head. Pilate says, look at this pitiful man. He, he is no threat to you or I. Pilate found no guilt in Jesus and thought the severe abuse Jesus had endured would, would satisfy this control-hungry leaders, this control-hungry crowd. But it did not. It did not. Peter says, look at him. Or Pilate says, look at him. The presentation of Jesus before the religious leaders, the effect that Pilate was hoping for was rejected. It was rejected by these very ones who brought Jesus before him. And so that is our third and final subheading, and that is the rejection of Jesus in verses 6 to 7. In verses 6 to 7, in verse 6, they said, So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, saw Jesus, they cried out, Crucify! Crucify! Oh, what is in the heart of a man and a woman that they can, in such a condition, that they can still have like a shark smelling blood in the water? And that they could cry out still for the crucifixion, for the crucifixion of Jesus. This same crowd. See, we have spent a lot of time in these past few chapters. But this all happened in a week's time. And this same crowd who cried crucify at the beginning of the week, or who cried crucify now, at the beginning of the week, they had taken palm branches. And they went out to meet Jesus. And they began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh, even the king of Israel. It is this crowd that even though Pilate has found no guilt in Jesus, just a few days later is now crying, crucify, crucify, crucify. Some today say that um, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus wasn't really God. Jesus was a, a good man. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was, was, was yes, Jesus was extremely, or, or something very much uh, as a special and given and sent to us as an example and as a model to follow. And, but he wasn't, wasn't really, really God. And yet these religious leaders here, they would differ with those who want to think that way. And I do find that I, the, the irony within this in Leviticus, it would tell us that those who blaspheme the name of the Lord <clears throat> should be stoned. And this is what the, these religious leaders are pointing to. And they were wise enough. They knew the scriptures well enough 
to recognize that they were saying that Jesus was blaspheming God, and yet they did not recognize these same scriptures that point to the Messiah. They failed to recognize that. But just, just um, I'll just limit it to two cross-references here about Jesus, and I'll just stick with John about Jesus uh, and, and uh, where this accusation of him making himself out to be God came from in John chapter 5, verse 18. It tells us uh, way back there so many chapters ago that for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus, to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath laws, but he was also making himself out and calling God his father, making himself equal with God. A couple chapters later in John chapter 10, verse 33, the Jews again and again, by, by saying Jews, we really should understand that as religious leaders, as the religious people. Oh, they again answered him and say, for a work. We do not stone you, Jesus, but because you blasphemed and because you being a man make yourself out to be God. They indeed seen Jesus as God. And of course, we also acknowledge and realize that indeed Jesus was God, is God, is the son of God. Pilate, he was a gutless man who compromised his beliefs in an attempt to appease these religious leaders. But they would have none of it. In Pilate and in these religious leaders, we can see the deadly compromise or the deadly consequence of compromise. And in Jesus, we can see the costly short-term price paid for sticking to his, for sticking to our convictions. See, this is why Jesus came, to save his people from their sins at all costs. At all costs, Jesus couldn't compromise. Jesus couldn't make no compromise. This is exactly why Jesus came. And Jesus did it voluntarily. He had said at one point, he said, look, if I needed to, if I desired to, if I, if I wanted to, I could call 10,000 angels who would come and fight on my behalf. This was a total voluntary act of Jesus. Not anything that was accidentally brought upon him but back in the divine council before the foundation of the world, he was part of the plan, that this is how the plan would go to save humanity. Done it voluntarily. I was reminded of uh, Viktor Frankl. Some of you may have written the book. If you have not, I would advise you to read it, uh, Man's Search for Meeting. It's an excellent little book. It's about uh, Victor, who was in a concentration camp uh, there many, many years ago. And he wrote this in his little book, some of the observations that he had while he was there. And he had this to say, and I quote, Forces beyond your control can take away everything you possess except one thing, your freedom to choose how you will respond to the situation. You cannot control what happens to you in life, but you can always control what you feel and do about what happens to you, end quote, end quote. I, I, find that, I found that quote there very fitting as we think about what Jesus has endured and what Jesus has gone through. A, a, a person, uh, someone who could have refused to go through with this plan, Someone who could have walked away and said, you know what? I have come to give my life as a substitute for theirs, and they're rejecting me. Forget it. I'm done. I'm not going through with this. 
but he did not. And I'm reminded of how many times that things happen to me in life, not voluntarily, or maybe because of some of my actions, voluntarily and indirectly, and yet how depressed, how upset, how frustrated I can get with God, how I can get upset with Jesus, if I may say. And so I would like to offer to you this morning that when those things are in your life or come through your life, that you too realize and can understand what Jesus endured on our behalf, surely we can endure what we are currently facing. And I'm also reminded as we think about compromises, and as we think about how Pilate attempted to make this compromise with these religious leaders, and consequences uh, are deadly, and consequences uh, of compromise are very, very deadly. And we too, and you too, must choose. Will we, will I, will you please God, please self, please others? Try to compromise and try to synchronize, if we will, to two sets of beliefs, two understandings, two ways about going through life? Can't do that. We can't do that. Compromise is never an option. Compromise never works. Compromise is always something that leads to both parties, to all people, being upset, being dissatisfied. Compromise is never a choice. I think about our life. Think about our current climate. We can't compromise our Christian faith. We can't compromise our, our beliefs. We can't compromise our doctrines. We must double down, Jesus, even as Jesus himself did. And this is why, again, I will take this selfish opportunity to put before you, it is not good enough to know what you believe. You must know why you believe it. Something else that Victor had said, those in this country, I think he might have been quoting Nietzsche maybe, but those who have a why to live for can live through almost any what. And I find that very, very helpful. If we know what we believe and know why we believe it, we will not be enticed, we will not be tempted to compromise when we should not. Father, I thank you for the example that you have given us through your son. And Father, as we try to put some type of application to these events in your life, which I certainly am not capable of doing. Father, I do believe in the power of your spirit to work in our hearts and in our minds. And now, Lord, as we have sat quietly, patiently for a moment of time, I would invite you to search our hearts, search our minds, starting with me, Lord. In what ways do I compromise my faith, my beliefs? In what ways do I blame you for some of the difficulties I am going through? And so, Father, I do pray that uh, through this moment of reflection, through these moments of time, that uh, if confession is needed, we would confess. And then let us then, Father, rejoice in the hope that we have, that your atonement, that your abuse, that your 33 years was indeed effective and sufficient for us to live a happy, a fulfilled, and a victorious Christian life. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.